0: Hello and welcome to Employment Law Focus. I'm Jonathan Rennie, a partner in our Glasgow office. I'm joined today by Siobhan Fitzgerald. Siobhan's a partner in our Bristol office and also Leanne Armstrong, with Leanne being a legal director in our Belfast office.
1: The Celtic vibes are strong today, Jonathan.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they (laughs) sure are. (laughs) Now, we talked about burnout and work-related stress in episode four. And we're going to be revisiting that topic today, looking at wellbeing a little bit more generally. And there are two reasons for this, two pretty obvious reasons. Firstly, well, it's been our most popular episode so far. But secondly, the pandemic has created a whole new set of challenges that HR teams will need to be aware of and battle with. Clearly, it's quite overwhelming when you start to think about how the pandemic has affected businesses and the people working in them. But well-being has definitely been a constant theme.
1: Yeah, I do agree with that, Jonathan. Um, I mean, there's lots of statistics out there, but a recent survey carried out by Westfield Health uh, quite recently, February 2021, has found that 41% of employees have experienced mental health symptoms caused or worsened by work this year. You know, that is a a lot. Um, And we know that a lot of employers are looking for some sort of hybrid working arrangements going forwards where people are going to be spending some time in the office, some of it working remotely, and we've all been advising on a lot of these policies. But I think that's going to have a really big impact on wellbeing and HR teams are starting to think about the best practice and and how best to manage that.
0: Yeah, and I know we don't have a date for it yet, but the government is expected to give workers a legal right to work flexibly as part of the new Employment Act later on this year.
2: Yeah, and then we've also got to remember that the government's furlough scheme is also going to come to an end in September and that's going to throw up a whole host of issues for HR teams and employers in terms of, you know, how people are going to be feeling about reintegrating back into the workplace and the anxiety that might actually bring for some people. So there'll definitely be some additional support needed there.
1: Yeah, that's right, Leanne. And I think it's going to be quite a big thing coming back into the workplace when, you know, some people might have been out for well over a year with the furlough scheme. And another thing to think about as well is the long COVID, and I know we've all heard about that, and I think it will become a bigger issue as we sort of progress partly out of the pandemic. But I did read that it affects about 2 million people in the UK at the moment, and you can imagine that that figure is only going to increase. So employers are going to need to make sure that they're alive to the wellbeing issues, particularly around that, as well as everything else, and supporting those employees who are sort of having ongoing issues from suffering from COVID.
0: Yeah, for me, I really like the word wellbeing, which is a very obvious thing to say, but there would have been a time where we more commonly talked about mental health at work. And obviously, the, now the focus is a bit more positive on, on wellbeing and how we ensure that people are, are, are doing well within themselves.
1: Yes. And I think people are becoming a lot more discerning about who they work for these days with regards to well-being. I think it's quite high up people's agenda when they're looking at uh, maybe moving to work for a different employer. So it's going to be quite high up the priority list for HR's teams to make sure that they're attracting individuals through their well-being policies and procedures and their approach. Yeah, and Siobhan, it's obviously something that, you know,
2: should be a huge incentive to employers because, you know, there's there's a, a, a great risk associated with getting it wrong in terms of employees leaving, employees getting sick. And um, according to a survey that was run by Deloitte in 2020, employers spent £9 billion a year on replacing staff who lose their jobs due to mental health issues. So there's huge costs associated with it. So getting it right is, you know, there's huge incentives
0: for employers, absolutely.
1: And obviously, not to mention the legal risks involved. Sorry, I have to say that, given that we're lawyers.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, personally, I think this is one of the most challenging HR issues of our time, and one of the hardest to get right. Um, it's very difficult to strike the right balance here, and to know when uh, employees are genuinely in a position of suffering and needing support, and what the proportionate amount of support is that employers going to put into those types of cases. And certainly that, that occupies us in our in our advisory roles. Now, firstly, Leanne, you had some really interesting news to share when we first started talking about this topic, and that was about the right to disconnect, which I'll say sounds fantastic. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Jonathan, you, you actually mentioned in the introduction, uh, the uh, current proposals by the UK government to consider implementing a legal right to request flexible working. And actually what has happened just as, as of the 1st of April this year in the Republic of Ireland is that they have published a code of practice on the right to disconnect. And that's part of a wider drive um, by the Irish government to redress the imbalance really between work and personal life and try and focus on the positive aspects that COVID brought um, in terms of working practice. So what the right to disconnect does is it effectively gives employees the right to switch off from work. And that's regardless of whether you're working from home or you're actually in the workplace. And the motivation, as I said, is it's really just to keep those positive aspects of COVID. And this might be for some people continuing to work from home, the ability to be able to work a little bit more flexibly, maybe spread out your working hours and just to really have more time with the family, maybe focus a little bit more on hobbies. So the key rights that are enshrined in the the, the code of practice in ROI are that uh, people shouldn't have to routinely work outside of normal working hours. And I think that the focus really there is that word routinely. And they have a right not to be penalised for refusing to work outside of normal working hours. And then also, as a as a workforce, you have to respect um, another person's decision or their right to disconnect outside of normal working hours. Now, the code is intended to be very flexible in nature and, of course, across industries, People's normal working hours will differ quite a bit. The idea is that employers and employees are really going to come together here to find an arrangement that works for them. Now, failure to adhere to the Code of Practice, it's not an offence in the Republic of Ireland, but there can be adverse inferences drawn from it um, for failure to follow the guidance in the Code of Practice in the event that there were court
1: proceedings. It perhaps gives us a blueprint for what the UK government might be looking at. And we've talked in previous podcast episodes about what we call the work-life blur, you know, it's it's great to be able to do flexible working, but does that mean therefore that you actually then don't get a break at all because it just feels like you're always on, it's always sort of there. There's the temptation, I suppose, that you nip out to maybe make tea, but then you just go back and check your emails again and then you get back into it. And I suppose the concern with employees' well-being is that you don't get that proper break away, um, which can have all sorts of disadvantages um, as we know I'm wondering, you know, do we have any idea how employers in Ireland, what they think of this or how it's gone so far? Well, it's interesting you say that, um, Siobhan. We actually spoke to
2: an employment partner in Dublin-based law firm, Bern Wallace, um, Deidre Lynch, about the Code of Practice and how it has gone down with employers. Now, what she said is she believes with the passage of time, the Code will assume increasing significance in proceedings that are brought by employees and therefore employers should now take cognizance of the code and take steps to implement it within their organisations. She went on to say that many employers regard the code as a positive step, which is really good to hear, um, in ensuring that the lines of demarcation between employees' professional and personal lives are sort of split. Um, And as you have pointed out, she's noted that has become more blurred as we've gone through successive lockdowns. Many employers, she said, are increasingly aware that rested and rejuvenated employees are more productive employees who will deliver better business results, something that we all know um, already, and it's just about bringing that back into focus. Now, interestingly, what she said is that in terms of actual implementation, and I think there's some really good takeaway points here for um, employers in the UK who maybe don't necessarily have this requirement yet, but, you know, as part of good working practices, are there things to consider? So what Deidre told us in terms of implementation is that employers in ROI are they're developing a right to disconnect policy. They are developing training programmes for managers and new recruits just to reinforce the appropriate behaviours around disconnecting
1: from work outside normal working hours. I just think there's probably lots of Sort of small steps, maybe that can be taken just to think about mental health and well-being at work. So, you, you know, the idea of stopping meetings five minutes before the half hour or the hour just to allow people that little break. And I'm sure um, many people listening to the call have had that experience where you pretty much have a day of back-to-back sort of Microsoft Teams or Zoom calls, and it is exhausting, isn't it? It's it's as much looking at your own face as anything for the entire day. But um, you know, I do think that has a really big impact on your well-being and whilst you can do that for a certain length of time you know does that begin to then really um be detrimental after a longer period and if we can do these little steps like you're saying leanne perhaps through a policy uh, that's put in place and people are adhering to it then that might just be what makes the difference
2: Yeah, and and certainly, Siobhan, with regard to the policy, what Deidre had said is it's becoming really crucial in terms of making sure that both employer and employee understand what the right to disconnect means, because there could be that scope for misunderstanding about, you know, how it's to be applied, how it will impact on working practices. I think there is an acknowledgement there that through the pandemic, people were obviously working more flexibly and certainly there was a a survey run by Aviva of UK employees just recently and it has found that you know there's been quite a significant number of employees who have benefited quite a lot now from working more flexibly and that then leaves you with that sort of difficulty around well what are normal working hours and how do you absolutely have that split between what is someone's you know nine to five traditionally and then their time at home because that traditional nine to five is probably not so much there anymore. And that's also probably one of the things that people are benefiting from as a result of COVID. So one of the big talking points, I think, for employers and employees in the months ahead will be looking at the positive takeaways in terms of all of the the, the positive working practices, whether that be having that time to yourself in the evening or allowing people maybe to step back and get more involved with school runs and childcare during the day, maybe uh, commit more time to hobbies, and then they might actually want to log on a little bit in the evening. Um,
0: there's even a very simple thing, Leanne, and I can see this living and working in Scotland, which is I don't have terribly much of a difficulty working long hours in the darker months because you know there's not always an option for things that I'm going to be doing outdoors. But as soon as the sun comes up, and at the moment it's coming up at something like four thirty am, that's not to say I jump out of bed. But, you know, mm-hmm. there's more options in the summer for doing things flexibly and for having that that work-life balance. So lots of fascinating cultural questions, I suppose. For me in the workplace, with the right to disconnect, I can't help but think how that works with pay decisions and promotion decisions. And if you have competitions for roles, you know, is it the case that some people think, well, if I if I exercise that right, there might be negative consequences? And, of course, employment law. Covers all of this for other rights, flexible working, family leave, etc. But I find that quite quite nuanced and interesting as, as this as this develops. But it sounds like we all have a lot of enthusiasm for this, so we'll be closely keeping an eye on the Republic of Ireland. And I think there's other European countries as well. Leanne, have led the way in this.
1: Yeah, I think that um, in other countries it has been around for a longer period of time. I think in France, from 2016 so you know it's not not a new thing um it's interesting that in germany as well um volkswagen had this policy introduced in 2011 where their tech system stopped emails being sent to employees after a certain time in the evening so and then released them and they got sent through in the morning so you know it's not never say never you know that's the sort of thing that we could think about
2: yeah, and certainly Siobhan, when you talk about France, I, I believe that there's actually criminal sanctions attached to um, failure to adhere to the uh, to the, the, the right to disconnect uh, rules there. so they um, they're they're very passionate about it and certainly a leader um when it comes to, to looking at this. but I do think in the months ahead we're going to see this being a huge talking point uh, for around HR managers and just how, how do you actually implement it and how do you get it right for employee for all employees? who have lots of different circumstances to to navigate around. I mean, finally, the the last thing I'll say on this um, is that there was an interesting story in um, BBC News headlines a few weeks back that trade union prospect were um, actually calling for employees to be given a legally binding right to disconnect. So effectively a ban on routine calls and emails outside of working hours and um many are questioning whether that's really feasible. And I think even for us as employment lawyers, we're thinking, how could that work? You know, we we navigate clients around lots of different industries. And, you know, we can see how things differ across different sectors. And Peter Cheese, actually the chief executive of the, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. He's commented directly on this proposal. And he said he thought it would be challenging to make the proposals work. He said, the big question now is how do we create good ways of working that are good for people's well-being? And how do you improve? people's work-life balance and that is really the golden question isn't it that's what we all want the answer to
1: Mm -hmm. maybe if any of our listeners find the answer they can let us know and we'll interview them on the next podcast
0: (laughs) so I think earlier Siobhan you mentioned hybrid working which seems to be the in vogue expression at the moment and how that work-life blur is a threat to well-being Because people just struggle to finish on time or they're lured back to work or they just can't leave their workstation after hours. Are there any other issues that you think this creates?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we can't ignore is the potential gender equality issues here. So if we think back to the pre-pandemic world one of the real keys to unlocking gender equality in the workplace was thought to be flexible working. Um, and acceptance of that flexible working, home working is equally valid to being sort of there, visible in the office, and making sure that those who are working flexibly weren't overlooked for job opportunities or for promotion. So getting rid of what you might have heard is referred to as proximity bias. You know, I'll give you the work because I can see you sitting in front of me. And whilst of course it wasn't exclusively women um, pre-pandemic doing flexible working or home working the, sti- the statistics show that it was often the case that to support childcare commitments or other ho- home demands that it was women who were more likely to be
0: at home. Yeah, and then of course with the COVID pandemic flexible working was achieved essentially overnight.
1: I know. <laughs> So it, that was that was achieved. That was great. That was sort of like a long term plan, and and then it happened. Um, and you know, we've talked about obviously the pandemic has been awful, and people have had terrible experiences. But there have been some positives uh, to come out of it, and um, one of those, I think, is around the flexible working, which does help towards people's well-being, albeit that there are concerns that you have to be aware of as well. You know, I think now everybody understands the challenges of working from home, you know, away from colleagues and a large majority of both men and women had to work flexibly during the lockdowns to balance work and, of course, homeschooling. Um, the interesting thing now, though, will be to see how we emerge from all of this. So as we've said, many employers are, are developing these sort of back-to-work plans
2: yeah so really Siobhan you know for some there, there is no choice and that is back to the office That's just the nature of their job whereas for others there is a choice and I think the fear is that it will be women who will be more likely to opt for the hybrid working model the working from home potentially for childcare reasons and then are we back to some sort of you know the pre-pandemic concerns about female colleagues being overlooked I mean I know some people have talked about the idea that you know as you said, the proximity bias, they're not in the office, they're not seen because they're at home. Um, so yeah, I suppose there's a concern maybe that unless this is properly managed, we could see a backward step in terms of of more sort of female involvement, especially um, for promotion opportunities.
1: Yeah, I think that's quite right, Leanne. And, you know, there's been a lot written about this sort of fear that we could slip backwards again. And um, I recently published study of this was in America. There was a lot of people involved in it. I think about 30,000 um respondents, and they find that women are much more likely to want to work from home going forwards than men, so 50% more. Um, and that study also echoes the results of a survey in the UK um amongst 2,300 business leaders. So again, quite a big survey that's showing that 69% of mothers wish to work from home at least one day a week after the pandemic, but only 56% of fathers. So it does suggest that there is still going to be more likely maybe to be a, a larger number of female employees based at home. But you know, looking on the positives, I I really don't think that backwards progress is inevitable. Um, we have made real leaps and bounds in the acceptance of flexible working. And as I said, you know, everybody understands that. And I think the challenge for our listeners, and um, well, and for us at TLT, I think, is to think really carefully about the hybrid return and what steps can be taken to ensure a really inclusive, um, fully inclusive workforce that benefits everyone. So you know it could be it solutions i think we're all thinking about this at the minute you know how can we have a successful hybrid meeting at work where people feel that although they're not there they're dialing in remotely that they still feel part of the meeting in the room and maybe just making sure as simple as making sure people have what they need at home to be able to do their job properly um and Last but not least, um, sort of making sure we really crack that remote line management. Not least in line with the topic we're discussing today, to ensure that employees' mental health is supported, whether they're in the office or not.
0: There's some amazing technology out there. I don't know if any of you have seen the, the sort of hologram technology. It's a bit Star Wars, a bit Obi Wan <laughs> Kenobi, but you can sort of rematerialise in the in the in the office if if that's required. And that's that's going to be a very happy day for all of us.
1: I think my kids would like that one as well, Jonathan.
0: (laughs) So let's dig a little bit deeper into why this is such a challenging area to get right. Of course, it does seem that the vaccination programme is giving us a sense that some of our normal freedoms are coming back, which is fantastic. But after such a period of isolation, clearly there are anxieties out there about how we return to work, how we pick back up our friendships and what we might be doing in our day-to-day lives in the near future. So not everybody's going to be so eager to resume their lives as they were pre-March 2020. There's a new term that I've been reading about called cave syndrome. It probably doesn't require a great amount of explanation, but did give me some cause for thought. And it's just the very idea, as you might expect, that there will be individuals that might be a bit more apprehensive about, I suppose, coming outside of their cave, whatever that looks like, Mm -hmm. and socialising, resuming their morning commute, for example, and obviously there's a psychological impact to that. Different people may react in, in different ways. Some people find it easier to force themselves to get out and others might feel like they've got, I suppose, what you might call a happy cave that they're, they're content <laughs> in. So, I mean, what do, what do we think about this?
1: i I think you're right I mean it's a it's a I've not heard cave syndrome before, but um you know I can really remember the first time that I went shopping after this current lockdown and um it was really busy and it's quite a shock you know to have all these people around you again and you I think you get used to only seeing very few people um especially well for the three of us because we have mainly been working from home and I think it really does take all of us a bit of time to readjust. Yeah, it's it's your
2: surroundings as well, you know, I mean, certainly on the few occasions that I have gone back into the office, not, you know, that there are lots of us in because we are in the main working from home, but even just the sound of other people in the office can, you know, it's something you're almost having to readjust to because every every part of you has kind of got used to this sort of familiarity of home and how home sounds and so even the sound of being around other people or oh, those unfamiliar voices is really strange and I certainly find that.
0: I'm loving that, Leanne, because there's also kind of refinding your professional voice that you realise, oh, I had a different voice when I was in the office as, com- as compared to being at home. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things that sort of gradually come back to our thinking when we find ourselves go- going to back-, back to work and certainly very, very challenging. One of the things I was thinking back on was um, the Taylor review into modern working practices, which came out in July 2017. And that's pretty much ancient history now. But I was looking through it and I was doing a word search for mental health and well-being at work. That's four years ago, approximately. And there was very little commentary on mental health at work, which shows just how quickly the world of work moves and the changes. And clearly, if that report was being done now on the quality of work, you'd expect mental health to have a bigger focus
2: yeah i think i think jonathan it has been something that has been on the radar for for many years but fortunately it has taken covid to really bring it right to the top of the agenda for many employers And, um, you know so whilst maybe in 2017 it wasn't something that um that was being discussed or that was really being considered in terms of working practice um or certainly if it was it was quite far down the agenda now it's 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 prevalent and people are realizing that um we need to find a a, a better balance for employees
1: Yeah, I think that the... One of the things that a lot of our HR clients are telling us is that it is recognition of mental health and wellbeing as an issue at the top level that's maybe really making the difference. You know, before, um, both anecdotally and through sort of surveys that I've looked at, I think there has been a reluctance, especially at the senior level, to share any sort of mental health concerns that people have had, because that was perceived as a sign of weakness. Um, Whereas I think uh, that that is changing, which I think you're right, Leanne, the pandemic has made it difference to that. Um, there was some research recently by Bupa and showing that really there's been this generational shift in executive attitudes to mental health. And they're putting that down to partly many of the top people having suffered, um, themselves during the pandemic, or also perhaps maybe members of their family. And they've seen it firsthand to sort of realize, know that this is something that we need to support within the workplace and address because otherwise it could cause a really big issue for us from, from a business perspective. So do we think a lot of this then is about removing the stigma? You know a big part of actually
2: dealing with this issue in the workplace is removing the stigma of mental health and actually people feeling more comfortable about talking about their issues and you know how they've maybe overcome them at all levels within, within a, a business.
0: Listen, Leanne, you're, you're absolutely right there about the stigma. I think I think we all know that um, we're now having healthier discussions around this subject as the the, the podcast episode shows I think maybe it's difficult for managers to know what tools to deploy with staff who who have these issues and to know how to go beyond that kind of formulaic exchange of are you okay yes are, are you really okay and that's something that organizations are going to have to to work with and perhaps develop some of the the skills around maybe having mental health or well-being champions and all the other options that we mm-hmm. that we can that we can discuss here.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing more and more clients developing the idea of mental health champions. So people in the organization who can, who maybe are outside that sort of line management chain, that someone that you could actually speak to who you're not going to then have to report to the next day about something. So I think that can be really helpful. Um, And it's, it's happening more and more.
2: And I think about like you know when when we think about
1: diversity training, we think about certain protected
2: characteristics. There's a lot of training around, you know, phrases and wording that you know could be taken as offensive to somebody. And I think when we sort of you know snowball that idea into mental health, it's about with a lot of mental health champions and 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 um, employees and colleagues in the workplace. It's almost about starting to understand when someone says something that might be a trigger to them wanting to talk to you about something or that could be that could be something that raises concerns that maybe a line manager or a colleague thinks oh I should really pick up on that I don't think that person's doing too well Um, and I suppose a lot could maybe more focus could go into understanding more so that you know maybe language that people use that could suggest they need help.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges is going to be how we provide this support in the new hybrid working environment so you whilst you know you sit might sit next to someone or work alongside them and you just get a sense that they're just not quite feeling how or speaking how they normally would and that and that allows you to pick up on that in a fairly natural way I think the difficulty obviously is when someone's on the other side of a screen or you're not seeing them very often, you know, how are you going to have those little signals that that trigger concerns about mental health? So I think when we're talking about some sort of hybrid working policy or, or sort of tools around mental health, I think it'll be equipping managers to manage people remotely and you know, those sort of little calls that, um, you know, sometimes it's easy to let slip, but uh, those supervision calls or the um, the check-ins just to make sure they're all right, I think those take on increased importance uh, when the person isn't there in front of you.
0: Yeah, listen, it's that sort of measurability thing. I mean, you can send out survey monkeys to your staff, whether they agree, disagree about certain proposals, but where you have that ability to have that that human interaction to, to 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 have the conversations around the subject, that's when you really get the best quality of information about how somebody's finding their, their working environment. Something I was reading which I really like actually is that idea that these skills used to be called soft skills, and when I say used to be called, I mean probably some people do still use that language, but I quite like the expression human skills, because where we contrast soft skills with hard skills, it's sometimes lending itself to that kind of idea that the soft skills aren't really professional or, or, or focused or or they're, they're, they're the right approach. So I'm going to try my best to use that language of, of human skills going forward.
1: we as lawyers, we obviously see a lot of employment tribunal claims, so where it's all sort of gone wrong, and perhaps the person's then bringing a claim of constructive dismissal that they've not been supported properly, or perhaps it's including protected characteristics, but that their mental health has suffered in the workplace. And a sort of theme that goes through it is that often they'll say well i wasn't properly supported and no one asked me about that and i you know i was sitting at home but no one did call and you can almost see a theme i think running through these cases that proactive sort of line management support at the very early stage could probably have made a difference and might mean that you know we're not dealing with it at the employment tribunal stage so you know i know it's easy and you don't want to push all responsibility onto a line manager but i think that going forward it is going to be a really crucial role.
2: Yeah Siobhan and I I think rolling that back into the 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 idea about stigma uh, I think there is also what we want to do is try and encourage more people to talk because if you can get employees and I think equally we see this in a lot of cases employees who maybe maybe have had a mental health condition and they haven't been able to convey it to a manager. Now, there might be other signs and then we can get into all the complexities of the law and whether there there was knowledge, etc. But outside of that, what you have is an employee who maybe hasn't felt able to articulate very well what it is that's been going on with them or they want to play you know they want to put the corporate veil down I'm in work I'm fine and and I think if we can remove the stigma and we can allow people to more openly talk and as you said Siobhan that line managers feel free to engage in those conversations with employees you could actually find that you overcome problems before they become issues and ultimately before they end on an employment lawyer's desk.
1: (laughs) Yes, prevention better than cure. (laughs) Well, I
2: think since we are lawyers, um, we should probably take a moment to actually look at what the law says about mental health issues. So first of all, uh, the Equality Act, And uh, just for any listeners in Northern Ireland, um, we still have the old disability discrimination legislation, which is where mental health would would fall if it was a disability. And so a person who is suffering from work related stress or mental ill health, they may be disabled for the purposes of um, the Equality Act or disability discrimination legislation in Northern Ireland. And an employer needs to bear in mind the consequences of an employee being protected by the Equality Act by taking steps to manage stress and mental health at work an employer may be able to avoid an employee developing a, a mental impairment or where the employee has or develops an impairment uh, they can ensure that they're meeting their obligations and of, of course um for many of our listeners the listeners they'll understand that where you're dealing with a disabled employee their their duty to to make reasonable adjustments would be triggered
1: and The other thing as well as Equality Act, Disability Discrimination Legislation is that um, there are other sort of more health and safety type laws that are applicable here as well. So an employer has a duty to see that reasonable care is taken to provide the employees with a safe place of work. Um, safe tools to use and equipment and a safe system of working and um, sometimes especially if a a union has been involved in supporting a claim you see more of the health and safety type legislation beginning to creep in so the health and safety at work act um, so that's the sort of general duty on employers to ensure the health and safety of all their employees then there's also the management of health and safety at work regulations Um, they sort of that's your obligation to undertake risk assessment At work, and make sure that that's been looked at to really try and prevent, have it's sort of called the. principle of prevention so you're trying to avoid risks where possible um and having a policy in place which sort of makes sure that risks don't arise where at all possible and make sure that employees are well trained and, and understand the risks that they're facing in the workplace so you know there are there is a lot of case law around this as well that potentially even there could be personal injury claims arising out of a sort of failure to especially a sort of failure to avoid a foreseeable injury to an employee's mental ill health at work. And I'd probably say, I don't know if you two have found this, but that's just beginning to creep into employment tribunal pleadings as well now, a sort of personal injury arising perhaps out of discriminatory failure to look after someone's mental health.
2: Yeah, I agree, Siobhan. I think it's definitely something that is is being tagged on now to um to discrimination claims more and more often. Um and it does add that additional layer for for um for employers to consider um, in terms of, you know, as you said, you know, what, what what did they know? What was it was it foreseeable that someone was, you know, that, that w- was unwell or that, you know, treatment of somebody in such a way could result in actually a deterioration in someone's mental ill health?
0: I think yes. employers as well feel like the language changes when person injury comes into play because the stress and anxiety might then be determined as being psychiatric injury.
1: Yeah and I think what if I can sort of Pull one sort of general theme out of the cases on on psychiatric injury, like you say, Jonathan. It's that where the employer really has taken positive steps to support someone, to have policies and procedures in place, to have good line management sort of behaviours, then I think it can be difficult for an employee to succeed in that kind of claim. So all of these steps that we're talking about for our our listeners to think about implementing will really help mitigate risk of any sort of claim like that.
0: Now, listen, I wondered if people might want to hear a little bit about what we are doing at TLT that's helped inform some of our chat today, actually, and how we're using the Mindful Business Charter to, I suppose, encourage the best behaviours to look after our staff and to try and reduce stress in the workplace, Yvonne.
1: Yes so the mindful business charter is something that we've adopted at TLT it goes back to sort of what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode around the sort of work life blur and uh, letting work sort of take over and uh, th- there's lots of ideas in it about your behaviors at work so for example pausing before you send that late email perhaps to a junior person in the team asking them to do something or just respecting other people's working hours uh, respecting holidays is a big one so um looking at if if they're away or perhaps it's a non-working day, then you sort of try and sort it out yourself and don't get tempted just to pick up the phone. And I think uh, you know, we've talked before about sort of senior leadership, but we're trying to make sure that that's role modeled by senior people uh, within Tlt for example just to to make sure that that sort of begins to affect the culture and it's something we're really keen to embrace uh, at tlt to to really try and make sure that we can have a positive experience and and manage the well-being of employees
2: and I, I think Siobhan, it's one of those areas where um you know whether you're sharing your you know your knowledge or things that have gone well with you know other law firms or other sort of professionals Services industries. I think. I think in general, this is just about you know employers collectively sharing tips about how they have successfully managed um, you know the, this this sort of work life balance blur to make a a better working environment for employees. And I think there's so much good stuff out there that we can share and learn from one another.
1: one thing that we haven't really touched on yet actually is around the sort of uh, return on investment for what you might be money, for example, you might be putting towards a wellbeing budget. And, you know, there's loads we can say on that. And I won't go into much detail now, but um, there was a survey done fairly recently by Deloitte that find that return on investment for five, uh, a five pound return for every one pound spent on, on wellbeing and health initiatives in the workplace. I mean, it's always difficult to put a figure on these things. And some, some surveys have had it a lot higher and some have had it a bit lower. but I think that what it does show is that when you are prepared to commit something to well-being and managing the health of of your employees at work, that that really does make a difference, a really positive difference. Uh, And ultimately, that hits the bottom line. Um, I think one area where employers
2: would definitely see, um, cost savings, Siobhan, would be in, um, you know, returns on having to, um, to, to train new members of staff. And, you know, certainly if this goes well, you would expect that you would have increased employee retention rates, and um, which would mean then that you're not out the costs of having to, to retrain new members of staff.
0: And the recruitment piece as well, let's remember there'll be, um, millennials and Generation Z that are really looking at employers as to what their well-being models are and, and, and making decisions about their career options based on that.
2: I think we have we've, we've had a lot of really interesting discussion during this podcast and um I certainly don't believe that any of us think we have the the answers to all of these questions, but what we what we know is that like we're all on this collective journey together and we can learn from one another. I think for you know our listeners key takeaways well-being really needs to be high up the agenda for successful businesses it's an excellent recruitment and retention tool and it's definitely just going to lead to a happier workforce I think we need to consider devising uh, well-being strategies and um, touching on on what Siobhan mentioned earlier in relation to the Deloitte survey and have that well-being budget and there are returns on it and and, and that can be seen and uh, you know have buy-in from the top that senior sponsorship and role modeling is key.
0: Thanks, Leanne, and thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We really enjoy putting these podcasts together and we really hope that you're enjoying them too. If you have any feedback we'd love to hear from you, you can email us at emplawpodcast at tltsolisters.com and we're very interested in any recommended topics or questions you'd like us to cover in future episodes. But listen, you can also just drop us a message if you want to say hello. You can also rate and review us on your podcast app And don't forget to subscribe. We're also available on Twitter at TLT underscore employment. And you can find us by searching for TLT LLP on LinkedIn. The information in this podcast is for general guidance only and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek specific advice for specific cases please visit our website for our full terms and conditions.